Welcome to the Wheel of Sports, brought to you by Melbourne's Turnstile Network. My name's Ian McNally, and with me is... Matt Lavery. And this is the podcast, home of the greatest sports stories ever told. How are you, Matt? I am wonderful. Thank you for asking. We were recently, both of us, I know some of the listeners might think, you know, we just get together for the podcast, but no... We we uh we went to a, a beer festival recently, didn't we? Oh, it was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Now there was uh there was some people there and there was some beer and, and that was about it, was it? It was people and beer in a room. Yeah, it was a big room though. Large large space. That that's what was the most important thing. And uh we we talked about other things about than sport, yeah. but not much and then we went home. <laughs> So it was. It, it was, was a nice great. day out. We should do that again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe bring the board games along. Oh, I'd love it. Enough about this. Uh, and the topic for this episode is two Ooh, tribes. Two tribes. Two tribes. I don't think we've had a two tribes for a while. It's been ages. But for this story, Matt, I'm going to go back to 1909. Oh, good. <laughs> Good, good. Some I thought you might. Rumours are afoot in the podcast industry that that was the year I was born. <laughs> 1909. Going to go back to New South Wales. Oh, yes. In 1909. Very different from the New South Wales of today. But I'm going to focus on a sport that is still the dominant sport in New South Wales. Rugby league. Oh, it's very popular. League is just, like, if you think about AFL dominating the pages in the southern state of Victoria, it's the rugby league that dominates the papers and all the media and the superstars. So mm. People who can't walk down the street without being mobbed are the rugby league players, hugely popular. And for this story, really, I need to put it into context. This story ends in 1909, but i got to go back to our home country, Matt, England is where rugby league started. Yes. In fact, rugby had been a game that was always amateur. Right. And there's a bit of a problem with this because rugby obviously was invented in rugby in the school, a highfalutin school uh, on the lines of Harrow and Eton. But by its essence of being amateur, it, it had excluded the working class. Huge working class uh, towns and cities wanted to play rugby, but were were unable because the practicality of playing rugby and not getting paid on a Saturday afternoon was hugely problematic because if you get injured, there's no sick pay. So you lose payment from your job. If you're out of work for three or four days, you could face the sack. Mm. So the the pitfall for somebody in the working class town was massive. And so that probably contributed to the growth of soccer rather than rugby in England. But it also stifled the growth of rugby in working class towns in England and particularly in the north. But change was afoot because in 1893, a vote went to change rugby and maybe to get it professionalised. But no, no, no. <laughs> they said that would contravene the true interest of and the game and the spirit of the game. But here's where the tension starts to ratchet up because this is the first, this is the canary in the mine. Here's where the problems are starting. Now, this is a long way from New South Wales. And what year is this? It's in 1893. Okay, yeah. So players saw promoters 
making huge amounts of money from the gate receipts. Mm -hmm. So the sport is very popular. And this starts to really, why I'm risking my livelihood, literally risking my livelihood because I could get sacked and lose my job. And so in 1895, on the 29th of August, they got together in the northern Yorkshire town of Uddersfield, which, believe it or not, starts with an H. <laughs> 21 teams on that day were formed in the Northern Union. Now, have you ever heard a more northern thing than that? <laughs> Bayek is like, the Northern Union was formed and rugby was never going to be the same. How does this impact New South Wales? Well, all the way in Australia, news feeds through that there's been a change in England and that these teams have started to professionalise the sport. Now, as a way to respond, the Metropolitan Rugby Union in Australia was formed in 1900 and it basically replaced all the private clubs in New South Wales and changed them into district teams. Uh And it's like kind of smart move because... It, it was done so the competition was more even, but also they could spread the teams across the suburbs so that you could build a, a base in each suburb and, yes. and get growth in get the, the fans in as well. So yeah. it's like kind of, a, it's 1900, that's kind of a modern idea mm-hmm. uh, and still being kind of used today as a way to sustain a sport. But here is planted the seed of future animosity, which becomes important later in the story. Balmain Union... They play at Birchgrove Park. Now, this is thought to be the best ground in the colony. But the Metropolitan Rugby Union, they ignore the home and away scheduling for the years. And they play, South Sydney play almost all their games at home, which is not at Birchgrove Park. It's in the SEG or South Ground. Why? That was a question that Balmain Union were asking themselves as well, because maybe there was a sense of bias towards the Souths and the East. Also, they played their games and they could also train with floodlights. Balmain and all the other teams in the league, or the Union, <laughs> were uh, they had to play all their games, like training games and stuff, under moonlight. Right. Or like just where they could get enough muster, enough light. Because remember, this is turn of the century stuff. So the technology is not there and obviously the expense. So, for example, Balmain played South Sydney 14 times in six years from 1900 to 1906. They only played twice at Birchgrove Park. And every other time at Sydney. Every other time it's either in South Park or South Park's great at it. <laughs> Can't get Cartman down there. Uh, or they'd play at um, the SEG. And so there seems to be a huge inequity here in terms of the way that the teams are run and the, and the union is run as well. But the one that turned the screw was in 1905, a team visited Australia. And they were fully professional. And they they were doing a tour. Can you guess which team it is? No idea. The All Blacks. Oh, right. Fully professional. And they were just going to head straight to England to play the Northern Union teams. Maybe if they could play us on their way to England, that would be a bit of a money spinner. Yeah, of course. So at this stage, what did, 
do the All Blacks sort of have uh, any sort of fame or notoriety, or is it just sort of the New Zealand team? What What is the All Blacks in 1905? Yeah, so the All Blacks um, are very well known because they're distinctly different in terms of their physique and background to any other team in the world, and as as they are today hugely famed for their amazing skill and physical prowess. And so they are a big draw card if they go to England right. that people want to see the All Blacks. Yeah, okay. Um, and so the idea that, Much as today. Yeah, much as today. And the idea that Australian, uh, they could play in Australia as well, sparked all these secret meetings to see, well, how can we make this possible? Because perhaps it's not possible in the current climate for this to happen. And maybe a breakaway league needs to happen for in order for us to allow us the flexibility to play teams like the All Blacks visiting or if an English team comes over to visit as well. Yeah. Maybe we can do it. And maybe the key to it all, money. <laughs> this Normal. could well be a Money Talks episode as much as two tribes. But a Labour politician, Harry Hoyle, James J. Giltonen, who's an entrepreneur... And the best cricketer of the time, wait for it, Matt, his name, Victor Trumper. Oh, good name. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> yeah. Uh... <laughs> you like that, don't you? Victor I Trumper. Love Victor Trumper. I mean, if that is, sounds like a, a great cartoon character or a villain. <laughs> I'd say a villain. The mystery. Villain, yeah. Villain. Victor Trumper. What they essentially did is they banded together with a few other influential people and they negotiated for over a year. They formed the New South Wales Rugby League against the union. And what was the point of difference? What were they setting themselves out, you know, in, in contrast to them? Was it all, was it just about sort of a bit more equity between the teams and the opportunity to do your own fixtures or was there more to it than that? The massive point of difference is that you're paying the players. Oh, right. You're so that's, you're, that, you're, you're going from amateur to professional. You start paying the players. The other the other uh, features are is that you move into an English-style uh, union game, which is, uh, or league game, sorry, which is 13 players and play the ball um, rules as well. But this formation of the league just created a massive chasm in Sydney because of course there's only a finite amount of rugby players around and they're all playing in the amateur at the the time so they all want to go and get paid so almost uh, it's amazing that some of them stayed because they, they got about half of them to jump over um, what, what was the reason why others would stay I think maybe just loyalty Really? And just kind of a sense that, you know... I say loyal, like, really? <laughs> yeah, 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 come on. Guess what, that wouldn't be me. <laughs> I get a better contract elsewhere. Yeah. Cheerio, Wheel of Sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is most definitely an amateur podcast. <laughs> if someone comes in to professionalise, we're, we're screwed. Um, yeah, you, you kind of do imagine that um, maybe morality plays a sense of loyalty uh the fact that you you don't know how long this new setup's going to last maybe it's painted out to be a bit you need charlatans making money off the back of the game yeah it's a bit of a circus um it's it's really interesting the way that 
a lot of the players just stayed. And maybe there's also a thing like, you know, if you start getting paid, then there's pressure. You know, you start yeah. having pressure. Maybe you, if you think, well, I'm only a bit part player, then maybe I'll just play in the amateur and enjoy myself rather than professionalise or maybe your job pays enough, you know. You've- yeah, do you know what? I, I asked that question, but then I think about it. And actually, there's probably a lot of modern equivalent examples where sportsmen don't immediately go to the highest bidder. You know, the, there's a lot of money to be made in, um, I don't know, China, for example, soccer players, uh, for soccer players. And most of the, the top ones haven't gone. Um, mm. Similarly, when the IPL started in cricket, you know, there was... People, I think, initially saw it as brash and, and sort of ridiculous and it wasn't embraced immediately. And now it's been replicated all over the place with the big bash and um, all of those T20 competitions. Uh, or famously, uh, Matthew Letizier, one of the most gifted players, uh, play for Southampton yeah, and never left player. because yeah. he got offers from Manchester United, among others, and said, if I move to them, I'd have to start training. Yeah, well, <laughs> so that's he, true, yeah. he was allowed at Southampton just to kick the ball around yeah. while all the players were doing pre-season and running up sand dunes and all mm. that and he was just playing around I mean it's a bit different because I'm comparing professionals to higher paid professionals as opposed <laughs> yeah. to amateurs to, to professionals but yeah maybe it's not always just as simple as following the money or else I guess the most popular soccer league would probably be in China and um yeah, it, it's not sort of always that way, is it? Yeah, but I suppose if you're working in a law firm in, in the turn of century Sydney and you're playing rugby at the weekends, then you think, well, I'm I'm doing all right for myself. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to lose focus on my career. Yeah, so I don't want to be professional. professionalised, then I start, you know, having, having to do more, yeah. having yeah. to go on tour um, around the country, maybe having to go overseas. There's a lot of... Uh, yeah, that, that all but, makes yeah. sense. So... The chance to play the All Blacks, who were naturally known by the media or the press in Sydney uh, as the All Golds at the time. The players can then get a share of the ticket money provided. And it's just, as you say, for some, just too much to refuse. Probably the critical player to get, if they can get Herbert Daly Messenger. Good name. Then it's all done. It's all in a bag. And so what's Herbert Daly Messenger doing? He's just the best. He's like Lionel Messi. He's like Don Bradman. He's rolled into one. He's just the, he's just the Don Juan of, of the sport in okay. Sydney. He's brilliant. And let's put this into context as a, as a sportsman. When he eventually tours in England, Newcastle United, uh, a Tottenham Hotspur offer him a contract to play football. For play soccer? Yeah. Wow, so he's so, a good, so he's an athlete then. Yeah, and they the boards were saying the messenger is going to play, and that sold tickets. So his reach was huge. Wow, like amazing, amazing player. Uh, and he, under the kind of badgering by Victor Trumper, <laughs> uh, who wouldn't give in to Victor, he actually jumped over to the new league. And as a punishment, the union struck all of his stats from the record books. Oh, no. That's, so he's like... That's, one of the, that's malicious. <laughs> one of the greatest players and remains so one of the greatest rugby players in Australia's history. Born in Balmain, he got every record struck from the book. Wow. They were, however, reinstated. 
so they don't get stressed out. Do you know when? No. <laughs> 2007. Oh, good. Well, well it's his, his great-great-grandchildren will be very proud. It took them a hundred years, a hundred years to put them back in a book. That is vindictive, isn't it? <laughs> It's a bit like the Sydney Rugby Union. <laughs> it's a bit like a break, you know, relationship breakup. <laughs> it's like oh, I'm gonna all those pictures of us on in holiday in Crete. I'm gonna burn them. Wow. <laughs> and it's like it's just amazing. So basically, the fallout from this is that the All Blacks were due to play three games in a series against the kind of a select New South Wales um, team. And they intended to use the English Northern Union rules with the 13 players and the play to play the ball rules. But because it was so hasty, hastily bandied together, they ended up reverting to the Union rules because they just couldn't, the players couldn't understand and get it together. The Aussie players. Yeah. But one critical thing of this is that 22,000 people went to watch the opening game. And this really gave rise to the New South Wales Rugby League. This was a, a critical point. So clearly there was a thirst for it. And in 1908, the league starts. It's got nine teams with over half of the first grade players in the city are secured in mm. this new league. The first season was played out. South Sydney won against Eastern Suburbs. They they still had their preference of ground there. So they were doing all right. Um, and kind of with a head of steam, uh, Giltonen, who had helped form the league, he finances a tour of England for the Kangaroos. Right. It's just like really exciting. They're, they're going on an international tour. So they're actually starting to create an Australian national side now. Yeah. So they've basically gone, um, obviously you had the Wallabies for the, for the union. Um, and now you've got the Kangaroos. So the Kangaroos... Or the rugby league team. Yeah, the rugby league team, yeah. So they, uh, Giltonen finances this tour of England. Obviously, it's northern England, and it's the end of the Australian season, which is the British winter. Yeah. <laughs> so they go over to the north of England with a schedule to play these northern teams, but there's industrial strikes, there's terrible weather, snow, <laughs> wind, rain. It's horrific. Sounds all like the of, north of England. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of these things impact on attendances, and Giltonen is broken. He is bankrupt. Oh no! I thought you meant just emotionally broken. Emotionally broken, and he's skint. Oh dear! He's so skint that the Northern Union, the English Northern Union, pay for the kangaroos to get home. My goodness. So he's just got nothing left in the bank. And again, that is a very Northern English thing to do, isn't it? It's like, you have a whip round, lads? <laughs> uh, yeah, it turns out the kangaroos, they can't get home and we've got to have whip round, uh, pass the cap around and see what you can give. Uh, maybe take it down church on Sunday and see what we can get there. And we've, you know, these Australians, they come over here, they outstay the welcome. Come on, let's get, <laughs> let's get them back on the boat. <laughs> How long's the boat at this point as well? Oh, probably about 300 metres longer, imagine the boat. <laughs> How long's the boat take? <laughs> Joker. Uh, I, I estimate it would be about eight weeks, eight weeks. maybe maybe a bit more yeah. um, to get home. But look, the British Navy are knocking it out of the park at the moment because they're building dreadnoughts by a, in an incredible rate, which, uh, you know, 
this is calm times before the First World War. So, But the kangaroos, I mean, Giltonen gets back to Australia. He's skint. And he's not only skint, but he gets home to find that him, Trumper, have lost their seats on the board. And so they're no longer part, an influential part of the league, despite being founder members. The league is on the brink of collapse. Giltonen's gone off. But who's looking after the home while it's all going on? And it's really on a knife edge. The only saviour to the league's existence for the following year that happened in 1909 comes from New Zealand again. A touring Maori team. They attract 50,000 spectators across two games. And essentially they clear the debt for the league and allow the 1909 season to go ahead. Oh. So you need to get the New Zealanders over all the time. Yeah, so despite this kind of New Zealand-Australian rivalry, I mean, there's a lot to be thankful for for the touring New Zealanders who come over and basically bail out this sport time and again within a really short space of time. So one of the sad things is, is that in 1908, the league actually lost uh, two teams by the 1909 season. The two teams they lost were uh, the Glebe, Dirty Reds. Dirty Isn't Reds. that a good name? That's a great name. They actually uh, gave the first Polynesian player in the history of the, the league the debut uh, in that season, Peter Moku. And the other team, which I'm not sure why they didn't survive, Cumberland Fruit Pickers. That's a lovely name <laughs> for a rugby team. I like it. I'm not sure it's a good name for a rugby team. Not intimidating more like, enough. More like an Egan Blyton novel. <laughs> Like the Cumberland fruit pickers. I mean, <laughs> you know when you're against the Balmain Tigers, <laughs> yeah. the South Sydney Rabbitohs, the the Cumberland fruit pickers, a sausage and a job that people do to stay a bit longer in Australia. <laughs> it's like does not make a rugby team name. Maybe they were forward thinking. Can you imagine the supporting supporter base you'd have now? <laughs> All the British and Irish people just doing three months of rural fruit picking Absolutely. to stay 12 months longer. It'd be a transitional fan base, but the Cumberland fruit pickers, man, why don't we name teams like that well nowadays? They're so brilliant. They they go to the wall anyway. So. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> Too busy in the field for all the wrong reasons. But this New South Wales Rugby League, no one was steering the ship. It's kind of all over the show until Edward Larkin uh, was appointed as full-time secretary. And one of the things that happens in the 1909 season is that they realise that Balmain, at their great ground, they're the only team really who are getting consistently high gates and are getting a lot of support. So what did the league do? They say, well, hey, Balmain, you can just play every game at home from now on. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> so they essentially scrapped the home and away thing for Balmain. I mean, this definitely is money talks. <laughs> like, if you're but, successful, you can have it all your own way. Okay, well, okay, maybe this is two because it's money talks to begin with. And we'll end up in two tribes because the 1909 season, the all the founding fathers are gone. James Gillerton, um, Victor Trumper, Harry Hoyle, they're all gone. Because the season in 1909 was in such financially dire straits, despite the Maori tour had, had kind of wiped out the debt, 
they were still very precarious. So Alexander Knox convinced the clubs to forgo all their gate receipts from all their games and just give it to the league. Okay. This is feeling like less. So do, do, what does that mean? That the clubs, are the players still getting paid? Who's paying them? Uh, Merchandise? Is that a thing in yeah, 1909? I don't think merch was... <laughs> Sky Sports wasn't. Fox, yeah, yeah, your Fox yeah, yeah. subscription, yeah, probably TV, less. Even radio was, yeah. <laughs> was struggling. But you might get sponsors, I suppose, like local sponsors to, you know, put up a board or yeah, that's have, a, true. have, yeah, a, yeah. have the name on the... Yeah, maybe selling uh, Bovril and... Yeah, your uh, local soup and things. Or the, beer or whatever, yeah. yeah. So this guy, a bit of a shady character, Knox, he basically... Uh, he starts criticising uh, the New South Wales Rugby League officials who were involved in bringing down the rugby union. And he eventually lost his position on the rugby league board. So he's kicked out. This is the guy who basically was getting all the money in for the league. But they kick him out because he's mouthing off about <laughs> he's still bitter about what's happened to union. Probably rightly so. This all culminates this season in the final game which is between the first place, South Sydney, and the second place, Balmain. Okay. Now, they have a bit of a playoff uh, between the top four, but essentially the final day is the last two. Yeah. Now, another little uh, fella comes in the mix here called James Joynton-Smith. Now, James Joynton-Smith is a local entrepreneur. He's funded three matches between the Wallabies and the Kangaroos. So the three games don't get the attendances that he wants, don't make as much money as he needs. And so he says, well, I'll have a fourth game and I'll have the fourth game on the same day as the New South Wales Rugby League final between Balmain and South Sydney. Right. But what we'll do is we'll amalgamate that game and we'll play basically the New South Wales Rugby League final of 1909 will be an under undercard. So they'll play and then we'll play the Wallabies and the Kangaroos yeah. as the, the, the top fixture. Now, Balmain was sick about this. And as was South Sydney, because they thought well, this league is only two years old and we've diminished its value already. This is like a disgrace that we're being played on the undercard. Wouldn't the players need to be playing in the second game straight after as well? Well, I'm not sure how much of the players would cross over. I think they would have exclusivity for for the one game. Right. Um, but just kind of undermining, you know, it's like in the 1980s, imagine playing the FA Cup final, uh, you know, and then bumping it for Premier League games. Well, obviously that's happened in yeah. <laughs> recent years. Um, but it really undermines the prestige and yes. not playing it as the top game as well. So Balmain, they've sent people over to South Sydney and negotiations start before the final on the 14th of August. They unofficially decide they're going to boycott the game. Both of them? Both of them. Boycott the game. If we boycott the game, then we can arrange on a different day to play it. Your old man entrepreneur, James Joynton-Smith, he gets his eye wiped because he doesn't get as many in gate receipts and he can do one. And then we can play and keep the prestige of our tournaments 
Yes. And that'll stand us in good stead for next year. Yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. So they turn up on the day. Balmain's players turn up early and they start picketing the gate, trying to turn supporters away, saying their game's not happening. But despite bad weather, supporters are still going in. Comes to kick-off time. The referees on the pitch. Balmain players are not there. They're outside. Referee blows his whistle. South Sydney have turned up. <laughs> what, and they've snuck in? They're there. How did they get past the Balmain players? Oh, I assume there was many holes in the ground. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can't cover everything. Oh, wow. But they're in the ground. They're on the pitch, in their kit, ready to play. And Balmain's outside saying, don't go in here, the game's off. Referee blows his whistle. South Sydney kick off. Score a try. Referee calls the game off. It's been boycotted by Balmain. South Sydney lift the trophy. Of course. They're champions. Wow. Like, this is the most dramatic thing that's happened in rugby league history in Australia. This action for Balmain not to play in this game. And this is where the two tribes comes in because not only is there a conflict about whether this was a gentleman's agreement which was reneged on, but also in the days that followed, there was a public meeting held at Balmain to decide what to do about challenging South Sydney's like being credited as the premiers. And then it kind of dawns on everyone what Balmain were trying to achieve. The first speaker at the meeting was from North Sydney, Alexander Knox, who'd been knocked out of the uh, <laughs> New South Wales Rugby League earlier. And he tried to convince Balmain to forfeit the final, hoping that the uh, New South Wales Rugby League would not earn enough money to pay off its debts or to reimburse uh, James Joynton Smith. And they would collapse. And him, Alexander Knox, what does he want back? Good old union. He wants the league to collapse so then he, we can get all these players back in union oh, right. so and he's, rekindle it. Yeah, okay. So he's kind of, he's like Machiavellian trying Double to engineer, engineer this uh, collapse. And with the New South Wales Rugby League bankrupted, then Balmain and the North uh, Sydney teams, they could lead a new formation of a new body, but one where that they were the prominent teams, not South Sydney and the East, who had dominated with their floodlit pitch and their, yeah. you know, their nice home games all the time. And there'd be a power shift. And so, because Balmain was so unlikely to win on the 1909 um, final day, they had more to gain by attempting the collapse of the rugby league by boycotting it. So it it became this weird action that, you know, in one way was really admirable because they were trying to boycott it because they didn't want to be the under undercard in what should have been a prestigious event. But days later, when this comes about, these theories and conspiracies, further meetings happened and they tried to instigate legal proceedings and investigate forming a new league anyway but it just all stalled. It was just all too difficult. And in the opening round of the 1910 competition, the New South Wales Rugby League, um, they scheduled a rematch. <laughs> that'll, that'll go down. Isn't that great? But they played at a Birchgrove Park, which was Balmain's, Balmain's home, home, yeah. home turf to appease the local supporters. And uh, the, <laughs> the Balmain supporters, who are known as the Balmaniacs, they, right. uh, <laughs> that's excellent 
<laughs> they responded by they had a, a record crowd of over five thousand for the game, and they were they were beaten roundly thirteen uh, five. But the referee actually said um, of the crowd. Uh, naturally, they like to see their favourites win, and what district does not? In the presence, in the present instance, however, the team had to play second fiddle. But as sports, they took the defeat in good spirit and liberally applauded the visitors, which is very nice um, that that happened. But it didn't stay that way because South Sydney and Balmain are still to this day mad rivals because of this incident oh wow yeah. and people still have a sense of this incident and this story really this is where the two tribes comes in because they were so um this set off a chain in the new south wales rugby league between balmain tigers and the south sydney rabbitohs that in the 1969 grand final 60 years later balmain play South Sydney. Balmain go 9-0 up early in the game. Yeah. And then they pursue a tactic of feigning injury whenever South Sydney get momentum. Just delay. Destroy. They've waited 60 years and it became known as the lay down grand final. Aww. Such was the impact of the tactic. Did they get the win? They got the win. There you go. 60 years later. And that, again, like just creates this lineage to the current day of the two tribes of New South Wales, which all of these fraction fractures that happened in Northern England sent a chain almost to the Australian colony in a small part of the Australian colony, which then created fractures which still exist to this day. And, and New South Wales Rugby League, uh, no, in its original form, form until like 19, the 1980s, and then was changed. It actually became the Winfield Cup. <laughs> so, wow. um, But one of the uh, original guys, James Giltonen, who was one of the guys who went bankrupt for the tour of England. Yeah. He had the trophy named after him in the 1950s oh, and nice. he got named after him for a number of years as a founder member. But um, probably in summary, it's a great story on that fateful day on the 14th of August, 1909, when Balmain refused to play and their opposing team turn up anyway. And I can just imagine the Balmain supporters who did make it into the ground going home and them saying, how did you play today? We just didn't turn up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so there is the essence of New South Wales Rugby <laughs> League, which is still fanatically supported today in Sydney across Australia as well. And man, I could have, this story was riddled with different avenues to go down, hard to cut down to the essence of what is now Australia's second sport. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Ian. <laughs> Is it Australia's second sport? I would say third. Oh, jeez, you've even known. I was like, I was going first or second, and you've really put the nail in it. Well, what's the first? Cricket? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, exactly. This is really complicated now. It's very complicated. AFL, where does that fit in the mix? Yeah, Netball? Tennis? Oh, gee. Barty's number one in the world as it stands. Soccer ball? Formula um, One, they're good at that. For- 
Formula One. They are. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Wheel of Sports. Make sure you get in touch with us uh, on any social media platform that is uh, Twitter or Instagram. <laughs> Either of those. At the Wheel of Sports. Um, or you can email us thewheelofsports at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And a shout out to uh, two of our listeners, uh, Chris and Beck, who I actually met. It's not often you get to meet the listeners. Oh, wow. Where but, was this? Um, this was in the pub, Matt. Oh, classic. Yeah, great, isn't it? Um, voice recognised in the pub. Brilliant. Um, so a big shout out to Chris and Beck. And Chris was telling me, he said, you know, he loves the Wheel of Sport. He said, when nothing else is on the radio, he'll give us a listen. Um, there's, you know, I'm happy being known as the last resort. Yeah. On the radio as well. Are we on the radio? <laughs> well, I suppose, you, you know, you exhaust all the channels on the radio, then then you get onto your podcast. So uh, well, we'll thanks, take it. Uh, Chris thanks so much, Beck. Chris and Beck. I know you listen to us in the car. So um, hopefully um, you enjoy this little shout out and... I think I have them both down as Cumberland Fruit Picker fans, but um, rate and review us on whichever platform you listen to us, and we'll see you next time on The Wheel of Sports. Thanks so much.